If you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Last week, Peter provided two reliable sources to increase our confidence as a people that Christ is certainly returning, that the power of the Lord and the coming of the Lord are sure because of the apostolic witness, as Peter observed on the Mount of Transfiguration, and also through the Holy Scriptures that were not written by man, but they were written through men by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness as Peter has just been bolstering our understanding of the gospel in this first chapter. And now as we transition to the second chapter, Peter shifts from describing these reliable sources, these faithful teachers, to now describing unreliable sources, false teachers. And he speaks in our passage today about how God's destruction is upon them. The main idea for our passage, the framework that we will be operating from, is very simple. False teaching is destructive, and God will bring destruction on the false teachers, but he will rescue the godly. And so there is gospel hope for us in this passage, even as we discuss false teachers here today. So who are these untrue teachers? Who are these uh, men who have come among the church? Well, Peter provides us a sketch of these false teachers. If you remember back in the old Western movies that we watched, that there's a sketch uh, of a wanted criminal uh, that has certain markings for people to be looking out for, where in a sense, Peter is providing an apostolic sketching for us of a false teacher today, something to look out for, a warning for us to consider. He's, he's kind of blaring an alarm that we should not pass by. So how is the church to respond to this warning or to these warnings of false teachers? Those are the questions that are kind of driving our passage this morning. And we're gonna look at three responses to these false teachers. Uh, to these warnings that uh, are given to us. And the first one is found in the first three verses of our passage that our sister just read. And it's simply this. We want to heed the warning about false teachers, first and foremost. Look with me there in verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. This is a real threat that Peter is making mention of. These people actually exist. These teachers are marked as those who oppose the apostles' teaching and who ignore outright the scriptures themselves, preferring, as we learned last week in verses 20 and 21, their own interpretation driven by their own will. And look what they're, look what they're planted there in verse one. They're among us. They're among you. So we see back in 1 Peter chapter 5 that good and faithful shepherds are among you. But now we see that false shepherds are also among the people of God. And that is quite alarming. I hope we don't pass over that quickly. If we remember from Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said there are, there are those who pose as sheep but internally are ravenous wolves. Paul says the very same thing as recorded in Acts chapter 20, that fierce wolves will come in among you. 
devouring the sheep. We see it throughout the epistles and the gospels themselves. We often think of false teachers as far away, out there. We can identify them clearly. But, but I want us to see here in the text that this form of evil does not have selected territory that we just quickly identify. He, he's talking about an evil that seeps into every corner of the kingdom of God. That is the church. And so first we want to heed this warning that there are false teachers amongst the people of God. What are the marks from the sketch for us to be looking for? Uh, how are we to identify these false teachers? Well, Peter actually gives us some clues here. First, there's a method that they have. Look with me there in verse one. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. That's their method. Uh, these teachings are brought in secre secretly, subtly, like cartels smuggling in drugs with no public announcement. Uh, verse 3 says that they're greedy, seeking to exploit the people of God. That means to use the people of God for their benefit. Now, this suggests that false teaching comes without some loud announcement, without some formal declaration. Uh, oftentimes, these teachers, most times, these teachers don't even know they're false teachers. They're not sitting here saying, I'm a false teacher and I don't want anyone to know it. They think they're doing the right thing. They think they're believing in the right stuff. But in fact, they are not. Their, their method is sneaky. It, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that they creep in. Uh, Jude says the very same thing in verse 4, that they crept into the people of God. It, it, imagine a Christmas tree with all these beautiful packages uh, all lined out for Christmas morning. They all look the same. They all look like they belong. But one of the past... Packages has a dead mouse in it. These, these guys think that they have the right stuff and they are convinced and they're convincing to the people around them that they have the right stuff. These conversations typically happen in the small places, in the quiet places of the church. And they move from one degree to another as they build a following behind them. Peter also tells us of what their message is. Look again with me in verse one. These who will bring in secretly destructive heresies, comma, and this is a huge phrase about their message, even deny the master who bought them, and this brings upon themselves swift destruction. They bring in secretly destructive heresies, ruinous ideas, dangerous Decaying thoughts to the human soul. We're not talking about kind of momentary destruction here. We're talking about teaching that condemns since these false teachers themselves are condemned, as it says there in verse three. Their instruction does not find its roots in the apostolic teaching. And you might be asking, well, Blair, how can you say this? Well, when that phrase that Peter provides says that they denied the master who bought them. That master that, that Peter is referring to is the Lord Jesus Christ who purchased his people through the death, through his death on the cross, securing redemption for sinners. That, that word master is a reference to the sovereign Lord. 
It's used elsewhere in the New Testament, always referring to God. We, we see in Acts chapter four that the people prayed to, to the sovereign Lord. That's the same word for master. And it says he, he bought them. Well, that's the word for, for purchased or, or, or redeemed. Like a master who purchases slaves back and then he frees them. Well, that's what Christ does. Christ, Christ purchases his people a price of freedom at the cost of his own life through his own blood. And those he buys, he now frees to serve in his household. And these false teachers were claiming at some point to be redeemed by the same Christ at the same price. And you might ask, well, how can you say that? Well, remember that they were among the people holding to the same confession holding to the, to the same belief. They didn't look different. He's giving a warning that they're amongst the people. So, so be savvy, be discerning, because you can't easily detect them. And then says that they deny Christ. Uh, for them to deny the master means that they're denying the teaching of Christ. It means that they're, uh, they're denying the apostolic eyewitness and they're, they're denying the scriptures that were written through the power of the Holy Spirit. They're denying what Jesus said about himself. If you remember, godliness is gained through a knowledge of Christ. And that's what we're to grow in as Christians, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these false teachers were denying that very knowledge which was meant, which is meant for us to grow in. With clues throughout this letter, it's referring more than likely to denying that Christ is returning for his people. That's in chapter three, verse four. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But this is no small doctrine to pass over. This is a, a major primary doctrine of the Christian faith. It might be that they were denying other uh, teachings of Christ, other uh, Gnostic teachings that were baking, uh, being baked into their teaching, perhaps denying Christ's full humanity, perhaps denying Christ's full deity. No matter what the doctrine specifically was, it was a departure from the teaching of the apostles. And Peter thus is warning the church to know that when you depart from the teaching of the apostles who saw these things play out, you are departing from Christ himself, from the teaching that was given. And so before we move further, this is, this is just an appeal to, to all of us in this room to believe in the true doctrine of Christ, to, to not deny him. In order to be safe from the righteous judgment of God, against your sin, you must believe that Jesus is the eternal son of God, fully God himself, who stepped into creation and became fully man by putting on flesh and dwelling among us. Jesus is the incarnate God. He was and still is both God and man, two distinct natures, one eternal person. Beloved, he obeyed completely his father's will when he was here on earth, tabernacling amongst us. 
without a trace of sin in him. And he shed his blood for us on a cross and he died a cursed man's death. The cursed man is every single one of us who claim him. And he was buried and three days later, he rose from the dead by his own power, according to the scriptures. And after living 40 days as the resurrected Christ, he ascended to the right hand of the Father for his coronation as king where he currently sits and reigns over everything. And then he will come again for his sheep. Beloved, if you refuse this teaching, you are refusing the very center of the gospel. You are denying Christ just as false teachers denied Christ and those who followed him. You can be religious, you can be nice, you can believe in God, you can say prayers for people, but if you deny the person and work of the master, his death and resurrection, his reign and his return, then Peter says swift destruction will come upon you. This is what they were bringing in secretly to the church and this is what they were teaching with their lips. Now, Let's look at the contents of their heart. That's their motives. And Peter gives us that as well in verse, in verse two. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now, consider their motives here. This is, this is the motives of the false teachers. It's greed, like we talked about in verse three. It's to gain something from the flock. We, we see this warning in Ezekiel chapter 34 that there are false teachers, false apostles that come in and seek to gain and live off uh, the sheep, not caring for the sheep, not sparing their life. But look what he also says. Their sensuality causes many to follow them. Now, sensuality is this full freedom to do debaucherous things, with reference here to Sodom and Gomorrah in verse six. And then if you look down in verse 10, he's talking about defiling lustful passion. There is no doubt that sensuality here is referring to their motives of being sexually immoral. So, so not only are they, they denying the master, but their hearts are proving what they love, what they, what they worship, what they want in this life. And there is no talk of repentance in these teachers. There's no talk of confession. They take advantage of the grace of God, but there is no warning about living a licentious life. When you deny Christ's return, you're also denying the one who's coming to judge the living and the dead. And so there's a freedom in their minds to live any way they want. Now, beloved, we need to heed a warning like that today. Our society has put in a blender God's views of sexual ethic and has confused so many living in society. The only one true remaining outpost holding to this doctrine is the one true church. How has God designed sexuality between a man and a woman? Sexuality is the primary way people want to be identified today. Not just what you do, but the very essence of who one is. This is my identity. I identify this 
way. Society has placed great pressures on the church to surrender our biblical expectations. And beloved, unfortunately, many placed, many have fallen to these temptations. Whether it be local churches or whole denominations themselves have given in to sensuality brought on by false teachers. It starts with one small departure from biblical truth, which in the moment seems fairly innocent or just a point of disagreement, but in the end produces an entirely different fruit, an entirely different tree. It proves to birth a new approach to understanding the apostles' teaching and then even interpreting the scriptures in general. In fact, in our very convention, 33 years ago, this began to take place as two sets of people in the Southern Baptist Convention were having a disagreement on doctrine. You have conservatives on one side, you have liberals on the other, and the liberal view was, was, the, was the idea that the scriptures were not without error and didn't have full authority the way that some hold them to have. And they began to say, we want to depart from the very convention that we used to agree with. It was over that little decision that the Bible is just, has just a few little errors that began to step them off into an entirely different world of teaching, ultimately holding to women being pastors, ultimately holding to other things to where today they they completely and utterly affirm homosexuality both in the church and through ordaining clergy who practice this lifestyle. That's 33 years ago in our own convention. We have to be mindful of the sneakiness of teachers and the danger of doctrines. So oftentimes you are looking for geysers, these obvious things that are springing up from our kitchen, right? A plumbing issue. It's obvious that there's an issue right there, but oftentimes false teaching is more like the leaks and the drips and your eroding pipes underneath your house. You don't know they're dripping. You don't know what's going on underneath the foundation, but in time, your foundation begins to shift. And then all of a sudden, one day, you see a crack in your wall. And you're like, that didn't used to be there. And then you go a little further, and the door frame of your bedroom begins to shift. And you can't shut your door. Do I sound like I'm talking from personal experience? I am. This is our house. (laughs) But it's true. This is how false teaching enters into the church. It's slow, it's sneaky, you don't know it's there until it's too late. Why is this important for us? Because look what the text says, there is destruction that is at stake. Destruction. Blaspheming God is at stake here. Those who abandoned the truth. So how do you you respond to this first point? I, I would ask you to pray. First, pray for your pastors. Pray for your teachers. Pray that we would be God-fearing and faithful to hold to the written word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
There is no one in this room who is not capable of doing the very same things as these false teachers. None, none of us. If you're a teacher in an ABF, I appeal to you to be faithful to the word of God. Uh, pastors, those who handle the word of God, handle it gently with fear and admonition for the Lord. If you're discipling someone, uh, it's generationally, if you're discipling someone in your home, be tethered to what Christ said and don't invent your own, your own ideas as these false teachers did. Number two, filter what you hear and even speak to the teachers through God's word. A great example is given to us in Acts chapter 17, the Bereans. Be Berean. These are the guys when the apostles came to them, they were checking everything they said against the scriptures. Congregation for us to be a healthy, thriving church. We want you to check everything that is said both from this pulpit and in passing in your ABF classrooms from the word of God itself. The true authority because the word is tethered to Christ. Now, does God stand idly by with these false teachers sneaking in? What, what action does God bring against these false teachers? Well, verses three through eight suggest that God brings justice. And that's the second way we can respond to false teaching is we want to hold to the promise that God is going to be bring justice against these false teachers. Look with me in verse three. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Now this is a, a swift destruction that is brought to them. It doesn't mean an immediate destruction, but when the destruction comes, it's a swift one and their condemnation is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. What does that mean? It's as if Peter is personifying God's condemnation. He, he's illustrating that Christ himself is going to be the one who brings the destruction. That Christ himself is not asleep to what's going on in the world. Uh, those who deny the master will face the master. That's the simplest way that I can say it. Christ is waiting to ratify their condemnation that was set from long ago. This is not surprising to God. God is bringing these things about for his own glory. It might seem, beloved, that they're advancing now in different parts of the kingdom of God. It, it, it might look very confusing to us and to a watching world, but God's judgment is not asleep. He has his eyes on it all. In fact, to bolster, uh, to bolster his argument, Peter prov uh, provides three examples of how God has dealt with, uh, in a swift, judging way, evil that's on this earth. And, and it, this is a persuasion argument that he's kind of bringing forward. There's a, there's a bunch of ifs, and then there's, a, then there's a then, okay? So let's look at these ifs first. Uh, the first example from the Old Testament of God's proven track record of swift judgment against evil is angels and their fall. Verse four, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. He, he's referring to one third of the angels, who were cast out of heaven because they sinned against God. They rebelled with Lucifer to try to take over the throne of God. 
And what did God do with this sin? He did not spare the angels that used to blow the trumpets when, he, when his glory was revealed. He did not spare them. And it says in Revelation chapter 12 that their judgment is remaining on them until the second death. And so he has committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. He's, he's literally co-signed some sort of life uh, that they live until the full judgment comes. I and mean, we see this. Even when Jesus is pulling demons out of a man, he sends demons into a pig. I mean, they cannot find comfort and they won't find comfort until they see Jesus and they definitely won't get comfortable at that moment. Number two, verse five, there's people who rejected Noah's word. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. I want to Think about this. If you remember back in Genesis chapter six, it, it's presumed by many scholars that it probably took about 120 years for Noah to, to build the ark, to hold to the promise of God. And he's building this ark, and as the text says here uh, from Peter, he's a herald of righteousness. So he's talking about the promises that God is going to bring uh, destruction upon the earth. And then it says in the text that seven others were, were, were preserved as well. That in 127 years, or excuse me, 120 years of ministry, or what, however many years it was, only seven converts. But God brought destruction on the ark. The waters of judgment surged around the people who did not listen to God and who continued to live according to their own ways. And then he gives us a third example, verse six, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. We see in Genesis chapter 19, whole cities, two cities that were living full and complete, licentious lives, unnatural, street-level debauchery, specific specifically homosexuality. And what does God do? Well, he destroys the city. And it says, look at the language, condemn them to extinction. And the scriptures are right, those cities don't exist anymore. He rained down fire and sulfur upon them. So we know that God is going to handle the false teaching. We know that God is going to handle the false teachers. Ultimately and always, their teaching produces disaster, suffering, and swift judgment that will come. And like I said, if they're living any way they want, they're not thinking about the judgment that's coming to them. They have, they have no mind on it at all. Well, what should we, the people of God, think of God's judgment against evil and sin? Well, I think my first encouragement to you is to guard against a sinful retribution of the evil that's around you. I, I mean, don't take matters into your own hand. You can identify what is sin and what is not sin, but we're not called to enact this vengeance against the sinful people. In fact, it says in Romans chapter 12 that God will bring about vengeance himself. And we're called to love people. 
We're called to love those, even who are living sinful lifestyles that we disagree with. So we'll let God do the the judging. It it was God who brought down fire and sulfur to Sodom and Gomorrah. It, It was God who brought the rushing waters and the strong winds and the floods to destroy the ancient world. It will be God who brings this judgment. Your judgment is like a cat trying to roar instead of a lion. So just hold on and love the people that you used to be like. That would be my encouragement to you. Number two, uh, I want to encourage us that a lost world needs to hear the grace of God in the coming judgment. The lost world needs to hear this. Those who scorn God, uh, we might think it's, it's impossible for them to repent, for them to choose Christ. Beloved, God raises the dead. And he raises the dead by the preached word because faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of Christ. Oftentimes we have to deal with our own embarrassment, our own shame, not wanting to be rejected, wanting our lives to be peaceful, not wanting to bring, to bring difficulty upon ourselves. Oh, aren't you glad that someone brought the good news of the grace of the Lord Jesus to you? Or this same judgment remains upon us. It's also a reminder to teach the next generation that God hates sin and false testimony. If you are a parent, if you are a grandparent, if you are an older saint in the church, teach the younger saints what God's word says and what his designs are so that we can flourish for the glory of God, so that we can enjoy proper living, proper fellowship with the living God. If you are a parent, take time in your home to teach rightly the things of God. Your children are being discipled at every turn in this world. The the pressures to capitulate are everywhere. Teach them the word of God. From, from, From cradle to 18 years old, they're in your house. Teach them day and night what God has said because it's good for you, it's good for your children's heart to believe in the right things. And God is glorified in this. Now, is bringing justice the only action that God takes regarding false teachers? It's not. I want us finally to look and notice the heart of God for his people. He will preserve and rescue his people from such trials from such uh, vile doctrines. Look at that third point, verse nine and 10. Hope in God who rescues his people. That's the third way that we can respond to this false teaching. We're to hope in God. Look back with me in verse five. God preserved Noah, a herald of righteous, with seven others. Uh, Verse seven, if he rescued righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Look how he describes Lot in verse eight. For as that righteous man lived among, among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He, he, if he saved Noah, if he rescued Lot, look what it says there in verse nine. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to care for us. He knows how to display a loving heart to us. He knows how to entangle us when we feel very entangled in this world. 
Our God knows how to do this. And that's why he's provided two wonderful examples that testify to God's care for his people. This is the loving heart of God on display for the people of God to hold fast to so that we would endure. Beloved, he is coming. He is coming to rescue us. He has provided everything for us, both for life and for godliness. He has provided us grace through Christ. He's provided us the Holy Spirit. He's provided us his living and active word. He has provided us one another to remind each other of the truth. He's even providing us ways to discern if a teacher is false or not. Those who depart from the doctrines. He has provided everything. He provides a way of escape and ultimately he will provide the greatest escape and that's to be with him forever. We don't have to worry whether or not a teacher is teaching the right things of God. Because in the kingdom of God, in the, heaven, in, in the heavens where we will dwell with him forever, we can trust the true shepherd's word day after day as he pastors us forever. And that's our hope. So look, I mean, verses nine and 10, the judgment on sin is a sure thing. Uh, look what he says, it's really strong language. Verse 10, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Basically what he's saying is those who do whatever they want and they don't care about the authority that Christ has over them. They don't care what God's word says. I'm gonna do whatever I I think, whatever I feel. The judgment is on them. So judgment is a sure thing, but escape from judgment is possible. Every single person will experience one of these things. The judgment of God or an escape. I want us to think about that. The Lord Jesus himself will bring upon wrath, his wrath from those who deny him. That's 2 Timothy chapter four, verse one. The judge of the living and the dead. God is a righteous judge who punishes sin. He has shown us in the text today how serious his attitude is toward sin. He will cast out his own created angels who used to worship him. He will destroy his ancient world that he made in his own image. He will blot out cities and save only Lot and his Daughters, this, this is how serious God deals with sin. God hates sin because God is good, because God is righteous and God is holy. Now, I want us to take a real quick inventory on our hearts. Our sin, our sin, the things that we're guilty of, the things that we think, the things that we do, deserves the same judgment that is being poured out on the ungodly and the false teachers. This is what we deserve. We should have expected this. Yet, he has provided a way of escape. He has provided a more permanent ark than Noah's ark. He he has provided a better escape route than Lot's escape route. And his name is Jesus. And he is the master. He is the sovereign Lord and he is the king. 
And we are not to deny him because he absorbed the wrath of God for us in his body on the tree. And those who believe this, they're delivered, they're saved, they're safe because of Christ. God delivers the godly from trials. This is kind of closing up today. I want us to see just a few responses. First, God delivers us from trials. Uh, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I love this passage. Put this in your heart. Um, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We go through trials in this life. We go through temptations. God does not prevent those things. In fact, we saw back in 1 Peter chapter one that we're tested for the genuineness of our faith that's more precious than gold that perishes, that, we, that it may result in the praise of God when Christ returns. Just remember, beloved, that God has provided a way of escape. He can and will and has the power over the trials that you're in in this life. Number two, do not accept the immorality that is around us. It's one thing to disagree with the immorality. It's quite another to just be desensitized to it. Going, well, it just it is what it is and the fire's too big for the little water hose that I have. No, we are to stand for the things that God has designed in order to decree and, and to proclaim and to herald, just as Noah did, the righteous things of God. Uh, notice Lot's heart, his soul. He was tormented over the lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. Are you tormented over the world that we're living in right now? Or are you just kind of saying, yeah, it is what it is? We, we want to recognize. We want to be distressed. We don't want to approve the things that God hates. And I think sometimes we can tr trickle into this because we care too little for God's holy standards, God's holy law, God's holy word. Law was righteous. Beloved, let's be righteous. Let's hold to the things that God's word, his eternal word says. I also think sometimes we care too little about those around us. We care too little. We must share the good news of the gospel. Again, another application for evangelism. People must know that one has delivered them out of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah if they would just believe the word and turn and walk. And then finally, beloved, finally, trust the one who absorbed the judgment for his people. I, this is a simple appeal today to believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he is safe? Do you believe that he has absorbed this wrath that we're talking about? Do you believe that he has the power to deliver you from trials, to raise you to walk in new life? Do you believe that he has given you the forgiveness of sins for those who have turned and trusted in him? Do you believe that he has provided righteousness? 2 Corinthians 5, the righteousness of God has been gifted to us through Jesus, the one who took on our sin. 
Beloved, grab the handle, hold on to him. He is the one who delivers. Let's consider these things from God's word today. Let's believe them in our heart. Let's pray.